Good morning, Oaks Church. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Connor, and I am an elder here at the Oaks. It is such a privilege and a blessing to be up here, but I have to admit, it's also rather scary. You're called to live your life, your whole life, before the face of God. And in reality, that is what you're doing every moment, whether you recognize it or not. But when God's people gather to worship, it makes that reality even more clear, making the responsibility to be faithful feel even weightier, and the need for grace even more apparent. So let's go to the Lord together, asking for that grace. Pray with me. Fathers, thank you for this day that you alone have made. I pray that you would just bless this time, Lord. Make your name known in me and through me, Lord. I pray that you would speak, God, and that you would bring your word to bring your people to yourself and make them holy as you are holy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. It's a scary thing to be in the presence of a king in his court. Looking at scripture, you're told in the book of Esther just how dangerous and severe it could be for anyone to enter into a king's court unwelcome. Even Esther, who was the queen at the time, was hesitant to approach the Persian throne for fear of death. In this time, if the king did not extend the scepter in his hand for you to touch when he saw you, then you were doomed to die. Today, we are looking at a passage where the prophet Isaiah finds himself taken up into the heavenly throne room of God, where the king of all creation will pronounce judgment on him. My main point to you today, as you look at this text, is that because of the Lord's gracious holiness, we are able to rightly recognize, worship, and serve him along with the rest of creation, as he deserves. And as you keep this main point in mind, and we divide up this passage, and as we divide up this passage, I want to call your attention to three important aspects of it. So, turn in your Bibles with me to Isaiah 6, and we'll start out by looking at verses 1 through 4. The word of the Lord says, In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. The aspect that I want to bring to your attention in these first four verses is that all creation rightly recognizes, praises, and serves the holy king who always has and always will be seated upon his throne. Immediately in this, in this passage, we are given the context as to when this happened. It's the same year that King Uzziah died. And who is this King Uzziah? We are told that in the book of Chronicles that King Uzziah reigned for 52 years in Judah. 
And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he did many great things for the Lord and his people. However, towards the end of his life, after having done these great things, he gave in to his pride by overstepping his role as king into that which was reserved for a priest and was struck with leprosy and separated from his people and the house of the Lord until he died. Now, despite that failing, for over a generation, he was a picture of righteousness, stability, and blessedness for the people of Judah. So his death is no light thing. And as we were reading through 1 Kings in the Bible in the year plan as a church, it's clear what a difference a good king makes. And, then, and that the next one in line for the kingship was not guaranteed to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, which always leads to devastation and turmoil in the nation. So in the eyes of many, and potentially even in the eyes of Isaiah, this was a bleak and unstable time. And ultimately, this serves to make Isaiah's vision all the more incredible. You are told that it was during this time Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, revealing his immovability. He's high and lifted up, revealing his transcendence. And the train of his robe filled the temple, revealing his omnipresence. What a sight. Taking it all in, you see that this is the true king who is sovereign over, his, over all his creation for all time. This, this one, this person, this, this God is the overwhelming answer to the people's and Isaiah's fears and doubts. This is the one who created all, preserves all, and rules over all every moment of every single day. You are also told about those who serve him, the seraphim, who have six wings, two to cover their face, two to cover their feet, and two with which to fly. Now, this description does not draw us away from the Lord, but serves to give you an even better idea of who he is, who the one sitting on the throne is. Their ability to fly with two wings enables them to serve the Lord swiftly. As the psalmist tells us, he makes his messengers wins, his ministers a flaming fire. The covering of their feet show us that they do not direct their own path, but solely go and do what the Lord appoints. And finally, they cover their face, for not even those who were created, who were created to directly minister unto the Lord can look upon the fullness of his radiance. And being unable to look and stare speechless at the one who created them, they cannot help but call to one another and proclaim the reality of the one whose direct presence they abide. So they call out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And with this, you were brought up even further into the knowledge of the one, sitting upon, of the one who's sitting upon the throne. You're told he is three times holy to emphasize just how holy he is. There is no exclamation points in Hebrew. To, the, to repeat the same description is to exclaim just how much 
of that person, that, how much, in this case, how, much, how holy the Lord is. He is three times holy, a perfect number. He is pure. He is set apart. He is not like his creation. And also, living on this side of the incarnation, you know that the three times holy is also to signify the Holy Trinity as well. The angels know the God they worship. And every word they speak shows us that truth. They also proclaim that the whole earth is full of his glory. And from this, you have an idea of what the relationship between God's holiness and glory should rightly be in your mind. For God's glory is the visible manifestation of his holiness. God's radiant perfection and otherness is shown in all his creation. And then finally in this passage, you see at the sound of this proclamation, as if to confirm its truthfulness, creation responds by shaking and smoking. This also is right in line with what the psalmist tells us. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. Do you know that sense of majesty you get when you're standing in front of a mountain that you can't see the top of because it's higher than the clouds? The sense of mystery that you get when you look at the ocean and cannot imagine its depths? Or how about when you look at a waterfall and are in awe of the sheer force of the water going over it? Or finally, the feeling of wonder you get when you look out at the stars on a clear night. The reason, the true reason, why all those things make us feel the way they do, and that is a real, is because they reflect their creator. They reflect the majesty, mystery, awe-inspiring wonderfulness of the one you are told about in this passage. The whole earth is full of his glory. And as Jimmy said when he read the first half of Psalm 19, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. And as the Apostle Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans, as he is explaining God's justice towards those who refuse to honor him rightly, he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Instead of recognizing God as their creator and king, they see creation and those within creation as God. And just as those in Paul's time made creation their king, and those in Isaiah's time made, made Uzziah their king in hope, of their lives. So you are prone to make creation and creatures the king of your life as well. And that is a total perversion of what God has made. And when you pervert the nature of something and make it what is not meant to be, it leads to weariness, heavy burdens, and anxiety. Ask yourself, what makes you get out of the bed in the morning? What are the first thoughts which come into your head? 
Do you obsess over your health and immediately tell yourself that you need to get into the gym as soon as you wake up? Is your concern with politics driving you to endlessly watch and worry about what's going on in the news? Do you feel the, the need, the pressure to get ahead and work or studying at all costs and put every ounce of your effort into advancing it? Or maybe, or maybe you can't find a good reason to get out of bed. And it's a struggle every morning to seemingly push the boulder up the hill again. This passage confronts you with the reality of who God is. And putting him anywhere but the throne of your life is an affront to him. And it's an affront to you. And it's an affront to those around you. Everything you do needs to be in service of the true king. And that means every thought, every word, and every action you do needs to be taken captive and examined in relation to who God is. You need to examine them by yourself as well as with those around you who rightly recognize the king, whether that be throughout the week or here on Sundays, preferably both. It is crucial that it gets done lest you die and find out you're on the wide road to destruction this entire time. And if the conclusion you come to after examining your life with the, with, by yourself and with those around you is that you need to stop watching the news or change jobs, then you need to do so wisely. And as hard and as pressing as this message can be, trust me when I tell you it should be even more comforting. When the Lord is master of your life, you recognize that God cares about everything. When he is the reason you get out of bed and when he is the center of your thoughts, you can therefore rejoice in everything, for he is in control and he is good. He is the only king that takes in the weak and heavy laden and gives you a light yoke and an easy burden for he is gentle and lowly in heart. If even the inanimate objects we see in verse 4 respond to the Lord with reverence, you need to ask yourself, how should you? And as you look at Isaiah's response to the Holy King here in this next verse, I want you to notice the second aspect, which is the source of joy and praise of all creation is a source of dread and terror for all those who are in rebellion against the holy God. As we look at verse 5, it says, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What a response. Now, you might have expected him to start proclaiming with joy about God's holiness and glory in the earth. I mean, why wouldn't he? After all, every other living, after every other thing that can worship the Lord is worshiping the Lord here. His eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He has been shown the truth. What could be better? 
But instead, the response given, given by Isaiah couldn't be more different. It is, in fact, the exact opposite. The source of infinite joy and proclamation of the seraphim is a source of infinite dread and trauma of Isaiah. He begins by cursing himself and proclaiming that he is done for, he is finished. To pronounce a woe on you, upon yourself is no light thing. It is what you see Jesus pronouncing upon the Pharisees in the Gospels. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but, the in, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. It is the opposite of a blessing. It's a curse. Isaiah sees the Lord and sees himself and recognizes that he is lost in every sense of the word. And then and he tells you why this is the case. He's tainted, impure. He is unclean. Now, this isn't just some superficial uncleanness just like you might call yourself or someone else dirty after doing yard work or spilling something on yourself. This uncleanness doesn't, need, doesn't just need some soap and water to get out. This is an uncleanness that goes all the way down to the center of your being. This is the uncleanness that leads to death on earth and death for eternity. This uncleanness is sin. And notice how the prophet Isaiah, how he focuses on his lips being unclean. Not because the rest of his body is clean, but because he is unable to proclaim with praise along with the seraphim. His unclean lips testify that he's in direct opposition to who God is and to his good creation. And you see, the same thing is true of every other person Isaiah has ever been around. He has dwelt amongst the people of unclean lips. Let's take a second and dive into what exactly Isaiah is experiencing here. Scripture, scripture gives us an idea of what this would be like. Every atom in Isaiah's body is screaming out in pain. Every thought, every word, every action Isaiah has ever had is being brought to his mind with crystal clarity and condemning him. They are all unclean. But especially his words. Every flippant remark, every lie, every unjust curse, every unloving word ever uttered by his lips. He would rather have all the mountains and rocks fall on him in this moment if it meant being hidden from the Lord in his throne room. Terror is, is continually flooding his mind like a deer when it senses danger. Everything in him is telling him to flee while at the same time he knows there is nowhere he can go. All he can do is utter a curse on himself. And it, it's less like 
he is speaking these words, and more like these words are being drawn out from him. Just like the seraphim in all creation cannot, cannot help but praise, Isaiah cannot help but curse. This verse gives us a glimpse, if only for a second, of where rebellion against God leads. God does not wink at evil. He will not pretend it is all right and befriend sin. And you cannot afford to either. Christian, let this be a reminder that while sin will always be a reality in this life, for as the Apostle John tells us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But that is no excuse to not aim for its death in your life every single moment of every single day. Therefore, wherever it is revealed to you, you should lament its existence and war against it with all that you are. You need to hate your unjust anger, your lust, your pride, and all things which are contrary to God and all temptations entailed, to, entailed with them. And while first recognizing the sin in yourself, you need to truthfully and graciously warn those around you that the end of sin is death. To have an idea of what those who are currently outside of Christ will experience and not warn them is wrong. Every person deserves to hear the truth about this to the best of your ability. But for those of you here who have become friends with your sin, I hope this passage is a wake-up call. The pleasures of sin are fleeting and are ultimately a lie. What seems to be a nice pet crouching at the door what seems to be a nice pet is crouching at the door, getting ready to pounce and overtake you, for its desire is contrary to you. If you, continue, if you continue on in that friendship with your sin, one day you too will want the mountains and rocks to fall on you rather than be in the presence of a holy God. But you might be asking, but if uncleanness will always be a reality in this life. What hope do you have to stand before a holy God and not experience this? Not experience this dread and trauma, this unspeakable dread and trauma. Friends, there's only one hope. And as you look at this final section of the passage, I want you to notice this third aspect, that the Lord graciously condescends and saves those he calls by making them holy as he is holy. Look at verses 6 through 8 with me. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? 
Then I said, here I am, send me. This is incredible. What a picture of loving condescension you get here by our God. After Isaiah pronounced the correct, the right judgment on himself, at the command of the Lord, the seraphim flies to him with tongs holding a burning coal taken from the altar to what looks like initially execute that right judgment that Isaiah has been proclaiming. But he presses the burning coal up against his mouth. And instead of even greater pain and words of condemnation, Isaiah is given relief. And he hears words of immense comfort. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. Friends, how, how is this possible? The two questions you should be asking yourself is how can a piece of coal take away the type of uncleanness that Isaiah has, that you have? And also, how does this, totally, how does this not totally contradict God's perfect holiness and justice? This looks a lot like he's just winking at evil, like it's nothing, like he can just, with a wave of his magic wand, get rid of it. So with these two, those two questions in mind, let's answer them in that same order. So how does a piece of flaming coal make Isaiah clean? The short answer is, it doesn't. As the author of Hebrews tells us, the blood of bulls and goats does not take away guilt or atone for sin, and neither does a piece of flaming hot coal to the lips. Those were gracious signs and figures of the one who, ha- who was to come, has come, and will come again. Just as the blood of the spotless lamb took the place of the firstborn in Egypt, just so the firstborn of all creation took his sheep's place on the cross. Just as the burning coal transferred its flame to Isaiah, just so the one who is given the spirit without measure transfers his holy love to his people. And this does not only answer the first question, but the second as well. For God upholds his perfect justice and holiness by taking our place and the just punishment you deserve and by giving you the reward he deserves. A better question might be, why? Why does he do this? God does not need anything from you. And he is not threatened by your rebellion or your uncleanness. For you cannot hurt him. Yet, because of his gracious, loving kindness, he sent his only begotten son to take on flesh, live the perfect life, and then willingly lay it down by being lifted up on a cross. Then three days later, he took his life up again, showing us that he has conquered sin and death, and he, then he ascended and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. 
He did what we have failed to do every day since our fall in Adam by fulfilling the perfect law for us. Christ took your sins upon himself and the judgment we deserved and gave us his perfect life. Do you believe that? Do you recognize your sins for what they are, unclean, and have you put your faith in Christ, the only way, the only one who can take away your guilt and atone for your sins? The reason I chose this passage, the reason it's one of my, it's, it's one of my favorites, is because you have such a clear picture of who God is, what he has done for you, and what that means for you today. Christ's work is our only hope. And it's crucial that you understand he is still working today. He is interceding for you and working through, through you so you might say along with Isaiah, here I am, send me, making us holy as he is holy. You cannot work for your salvation, but you do work out of your salvation. Showing the Lord and those around you the same steadfast love you have been shown. For the one who redeems you is the same one sitting upon the throne. The Apostle John tells us again that in this vision, Isaiah saw Christ's glory and spoke of him. I hope you understand that the true king will never be on the throne of your life. You will never be able to rejoice in all of creation rightly. You will never be able to truly mourn or aim to kill your sin. You will not be able to graciously and truthfully warn others of the consequence of sin. And you will never be able to rightly recognize, praise, and serve God along with the rest of creation without the grace which is only found in Christ. Give your thoughts, words, and actions to Christ. Give him your uncleanness and sense. Repent and believe in him. He is the way and the truth and the life. There is no way to the Father except through him. In the book of Esther, as she bravely enters the throne room, you see just how quickly she won favor with the king. It was almost immediate. And if this is the case with a changeable, sinful, unclean king, Acting, toward one, acting towards one he loves, how much more confident can you be as, by the Holy Spirit, you approach the heavenly throne of grace in Christ's name alone? And how much quicker will your Father, whose love is infinitely more than you can imagine, who has brought you to this point in your life, and who is faithful and just to forgive, how much quicker will he cleanse you of all unrighteousness 
and bring you into true blessedness with him. Let's pray.